I don't need the dentist to have teeth. That may be a self-evident statement, right? But I don't need the dentist to have teeth. I know how to brush my teeth. I got taught that when I was young. And I know how to floss. And I even have floss at my house. I've got mouthwash. Now, sometimes it just sits on the sink and we stare at it for days. And other times, you know, Amy cleans up and sticks it under the sink. And I have to pull it back out to sit on the sink. But, you know, I don't use it. But I have mouthwash. I don't need the dentist to have teeth. Guys, all he's after is money. I don't need the dentist to have teeth. But, you know, if, if you're honest, like, hopefully you, you brush your teeth pretty regularly, you know, twice a day at least, three times is good, right? But if you're honest, like, there, there's times you miss, right? There's, there's times you're less consistent than you should be. And flossing. Like, you do a three-day spurt because you've made a fresh commitment, I'm going to floss, and you do three days of flossing. And then, you know, if you go to the dentist, six months later, he tells you to floss, and you start flossing again, like three days leading up to it, and then you forget, and you follow the habit. But you know how to floss, right? Mouthwash, you might do it occasionally. And you don't even notice, right, that that plaque starts to build up. Like, you know, it's just normal. You can't even perceive the little layers of damage that's happening to your teeth, you know, time after time, because you drink a bunch of coffee, or you eat a bunch of food you shouldn't eat or, you know, you eat some candy bars. You don't notice that just those little layers of damage is happening to your teeth. You don't need the dentist to have teeth. And about the only time you do is if you get a tooth ache, and then all of a sudden it's a problem and the dentist is no longer, yeah, it's fine. He's essential. He's important. So I guess what I'd say is you don't need a dentist to have teeth, but you do need a dentist to have healthy teeth. And why do I say that? Because how many times do we as Christians, let's just change the words. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I don't have to be meaningfully plugged into community to be a Christian. I can read my Bible. I know how. Somebody taught me. I have Christian friends. I can worship wherever I am. I can pray to God wherever I am. I don't need the church to be a Christian? Probably a bunch of hypocrites anyway, and all they want is some money from me. I don't need the church. I don't need meaningful engagement with the church to be a Christian. And we don't even notice. Because let's be honest, right? If you were to have to evaluate the consistency of your prayer life without being reminded by your family, you like, eh, you probably do it in spurts. And hopefully you read the Bible most days consistently. But, you know, how easy is it to sidestep when you're reading the Bible the things that it wants to point out in you that you don't want to see? Right? So maybe you read your Bible a little more consistently. Maybe you pray in spurts, right? And there's an unwritten rule among friends, isn't there? There's lines of accountability we don't cross in, proper friend, in polite friendships. Not unless we've made those friendships intentional. And we don't even notice how deformed our Christianity gets. We don't even notice the huge areas of immaturity within our life. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, but I need to be part of a church, meaningfully part of a church, consistently part of a church, to be a healthy Christian. And so it begs the question, is church an optional add-on to the menu of your spiritual life, or is church an essential part of your spiritual health? Is church 
an optional add-on to the menu of your spiritual life? Or is church essential to your spiritual health and growth? That's what we want to talk about today as we get into Because we kind of make this commitment, yeah, I'm part of a church. Right? You're here. I'm part of a church. As long as nothing else comes up, that is. As long as I don't have a trip planned that weekend. As long as I didn't stay up too late before and I'm not tired that morning. As long as there's not a hobby or a sport that gets in the way. Yeah, man, I'm church. And so we kind of make this commitment. And we think church is kind of valuable. But how valuable? Where does it rank on the priority scale of your spiritual life? And that's really what I want to challenge for me and that I want to challenge for you is because generally we think we're, we're fine unless there's some big bump and we don't notice the imperceptible damage that happens in our spiritual lives, the imperceptible damage that's happening in our family's life, in our kids' lives, in our marriages, uh, that our, the, the, the damage that happens in our marriages when we're not plugged into community and we stay apart from it, we just don't even notice that little by little until there's something major. But there's a value to day in and day out, week in and week out, weaving yourself together with this group of people called the church. And so I want to submit to you that church faithfulness is essential and not optional. Church faithfulness is essential and not optional. And by church faithfulness, I mean being part of groups, being part of relationships, attending, serving, plugging in. I don't mean like check, you're here. I mean like going all in with a group of people. It's essential and it's not optional. That's what I want to talk about today. And so we're going to hit a variety of texts today, but the one I want to launch into, the the college class is doing Ephesians over the summer. And so we're in chapter two this week. End of chapter one, Jesus is the head who fills all in all in his body, which is the church. And then chapter two launches in, and we're, we're familiar with chapter two, verses one through 10. It's like the most succinct summary of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. God's rich in mercy because of the love with which he's loved you. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Like, we know this stuff, but we completely miss. Like, that's part one. We completely miss part two. Like the second half of Ephesians 2 is what it's really about. End of chapter 1, head of the body, the church. Chapter 2, verse 11, therefore. And I want to read that part for you in, in um, I mean it's 13 through 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, here's where you need to start focusing, one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to you who are near. For through him we have access in the one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place by God in the Spirit. 
Individual salvation, dead in your sins, made alive together with Christ. Therefore, you're made a body. You're made a household, which is a family. You're made a building, which is a temple. Individual salvation always places you into corporate salvation, which is the church. There is no individual salvation off on its own somewhere. Individual salvation necessarily links to this new household, this new family, this new building in which you are being built together into a place where God himself dwells. You're like, that's great. I'm part of the universal church of Jesus. I'm part of church generic. Read your New Testament. There's no letters written to church generic. There's no letter in the New Testament written to church universal. Every letter of the New Testament is written to church with a name filled with a church of faces where people are bound together in love and service to press on to maturity and unity in the faith. And so you're individually saved into a body, and that body should be localized with names and faces and people who receive ministry and give ministry as part of your life. That's how God put this thing together. And I would say that's kind of the backdrop for this pendulum swing we see within the church at large. Right? It swings between church institution and individual autonomy. Church institution, individual autonomy. And for most of the history of the church, church institution. Come to the institution. Serve the institution. Give to the institution. Participate and protect the institution. Give money to the institution so holy people can do holy things for you. Be part of the church, attend the church, support the church. And there's something very good and right about that. God did not make a collection of individuals. He made a family to participate in. And so something, right? But there's also something really distorted when that's the thing. And so the pendulum has swung, I don't know, 50-ish years. And it is this cultural, radical autonomy of the individual, radical individualism and it's the same thing that's happened within us. Like, we are not immune. We have swung into this radical individualism. And so, does the church meet my needs? Does the, the, the church, is it important to me? Is the church providing me the goods and services and experiences that I need to provide for me and for my family? Then, okay, I'll put that on the buffet of my spiritual life. But if it doesn't, or if something else gets in the way, then I'll just kind of take that off because there's only so much room on the plate of my life. I'll just take that off and, and put something else in its place. And the church is about, does it meet my needs? Does it do what I want? And so what have churches done for 50 years? They've, tr pride, they've tried to change their goods and their services that they offer to be appealing so that you choose the church's goods and services instead of the world's goods and services. And so you still keep showing up. And there's something good and right about this. God saves individuals. He loves individuals. He gifts individuals. Right? Individuals are poor, important to him, and, and he loves them. But there's also something so radically skewed when the church of Jesus that's for Jesus and about Jesus and unto Jesus becomes about you or it becomes about me and what I want or think I need. Right? And so we miss something terribly when we skew in either direction and we don't blend together that there is a family, that family is meant to raise up individuals to the glory and honor of Christ, to like Micah said, to show the excellencies of the one that called us from darkness to light. 
And so we miss something when we don't put these two things together. That yes, there is this group called the church, there's this people called the church, and we should be plugged in meaningfully to it. And we miss that if we have the individual, or, or, or the radical individualism, and, and that's not that important. But we also miss something when the individual is so important that the glory of God in his church, not ours, becomes this optional thing. So I want to, I want to challenge you and I want to challenge me that the church should be a priority and faithfulness to the church should be a priority. And so look, I know that's long, super long intro, longer than we usually do it. You'll be okay. Um, but my goal is not to get you to show up at church because I need more of you here to talk to. You know, God fills this church up a lot. Or, you know, I would need more money. No, I mean, God has provided through you and through us so generously. Man, that's awesome stuff. The reason we're saying this is because God has ordained this for his glory, for your spiritual life, and for the impact of you and the people beyond you. He's ordained the church as his highest and best plan. He chose for his son to die to form a church. And so you should have that same priority and value on a church that he does. And so that's why we say it, not because not I need a, a, an attendance campaign to, to show up. Right? So let's pray together um, or walk through a few, a few points and then we'll, we'll get from there. So Father, thank you for this thing called the church. Thank you for Fletcher Church. Thank you for the faces I see all over this auditorium. God, thank you for nights like last night where there's a wedding filled with people who just love Jesus and support each other and there's gonna be just this amazing structure behind this new wedding, this new marriage, and marriage is tough. But you put a body of people around them that are precious faces that have been part of Fletcher. It's just a little picture, God, of what all the faces here do. I just thank you. I thank you that as I look out, I see so many people who love each other. So many people that have been there for each other for the stuff nobody will know about and the stuff we all know about. Thank you for this people. And now, Lord, would you... Would you allow us to have a heart for your church, a value of your church, God? That's the people here, not, not this building, the people here. God, would you give us a fresh heart for your church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first part of this is just kind of the, the, the structure I want to give you. Uh, the church is a bride, or make faithfulness to local church a priority. The church is a bride, body, and building who loves Jesus and unites to each other. The church is a bride, body, and building uh, that, uh, that loves Jesus and unites to each other. And so there's three picture, main pictures of the church in the New Testament. Just want to hit those quickly as the background for, for what we're going to jump into. And so, yes, there's others, but these are the three main ones. And the first one is that the church is a bride. So throughout the Bible, marriage, husband, and wife are the dominant motifs that God uses as a physical analogy for his relationship with his people. And so you have a picture from start to finish of the Bible of a loving husband who protects his bride, a loving husband who provides for his bride, a loving husband who gives everything this bride needs to thrive and to flourish, who pursues this bride over and over and over again. And that's the picture you see kind of start to finish of the Old Testament. And then on the other side, you see from start to finish of the Old Testament a bride who really stinks at being a bride. 
She's unfaithful, like there's spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery. She runs from her faithful husband instead of running to her faithful husband. She is allured by everything that's offered besides the goodness that her husband offers. And yet we have a husband pursue and a husband pursue all the way to the New Testament where Jesus lives and Jesus dies and Jesus rises again so that this bride's heart that runs can be a heart that's transformed. And this, guy, this bride's heart that has all these wanton desires can have fresh new desires for himself. And he is now, they're now empowered from the inside to love their, the husband, Jesus, and provide, from the inside to desire these new affections for Jesus and to live in faithfulness to Jesus. It's a bride. It's a bride with a husband who is so amazingly faithful, so amazingly lovely, done everything that it takes for this bride to be faithful to him, to be crazy in love with him, to abide in him, to look like him. We're a bride, a bride meant for faithfulness, a bride saved for faithfulness. That's the picture God gives us, one of the pictures God gives us. The second picture he gives us is a picture of a body. It's the, it's the picture of the body, and Christ is the head, and Christ lacks no maturity, so Christ is a perfectly formed man head, right? And then he saves this body, and one of the implications, or one of the a- applications of this imagery is you've got this mature man head, Jesus, and then you've got churches have these little baby bodies attached to them that can't quite hold up, right? And that part of what Christ does through gifted leaders and through ministry from person to person within the church is part of what he does is he takes this little baby body and he matures it so that the body is filled out and, and, and as full and big and mature as its head is. So that's, that's one implication of this. But the other implication, and I want to read that in a little bit of 1 Corinthians 12, the other implication is this. It doesn't just unite to its head, Jesus. It's a body that is connected and dependent on the other members of the body. And so listen to this in 1 Corinthians 12, and there's some other places. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so what he presses on the church through the image of the body is you're a group of people that are connected to each other. You're a group of people that if somebody is sick or lame, then part of the body is sick or lame. If you're one of the members that's missing, then, then it's like you're missing a finger. You're, you're missing part of the body. If one part of the body is unhealthy, then there's unhealthiness within the body. There's this interconnectedness. There's this unity attached to the body There is this dependence upon each other that is attached to the body. And so the picture that he gives you to be healthy, the picture that he gives you to be plugged into a group of people called the church is a picture of, I need other people. I'm connected to other people. And I can't change that I'm connected. I can yank myself out and be absent. I can be limp, but I can't change the fact that I've been woven with other people. There's ligaments there. And you got to tear those suckers if you're going to pull away from the body. So there's interconnectedness. There's dependence on each other. 
And so when we're like, be faithful to the church, it's not like, hey, make sure institutionally you register your attendance here. No, it's like you're woven together with the people next to you, so go sit beside them, go love them, go minister to them, go receive from them. We just sang, and you're like, man, I love worshiping the Lord, and they did a good job this morning. Do you know what else the, the Bible tells us we just did? We sang to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when you are here and when you participate, you're part of the ministry of God speaking to the people around you. And when you're not here, your voice is not speaking to anyone at all. We're a body. We're connected. We depend on each other. And when parts go missing and when parts deform and when parts are out of joint, the body is not as healthy as it's meant to be. Third picture, we're a building. <coughs> we're a building. Now, we talk a lot about this, that this is the auditorium where we hear. It is not the sanctuary where holy stuff happens, right? The church, when we're talking like this, is a building, but it's not this building. The church is you. The church is the people put together as a building. And so that's what Ephesians 2 told us. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know that you are God's temple? You, plural, the church, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. Now, the warning of that is, uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You are so much a holy place, meaning you, the people together, that when you mess with the holy place, the people, it's messing with God, and God doesn't take kindly to that. Right? He, he judges people who mess with his church. Right? But the point is this. We're the temple. We're the temple. And you know what lives inside of the gathered people of God and the separated people of God? The Spirit of God. We're a holy place because the Holy One lives within us. So is the church optional? Well, just look at the pictures. Is the church, is faithfulness to the church optional? We're a bride. Is it optional to be faithful? The image of the church is, is uh, a body. How do you feel when part of your body wakes, doesn't wake up with the rest? I guess it's kind of important to God if he's using these images. Does it matter? Is it optional? Well, the church is a building. And as we found out recently, because we had to put a lot of money into a roof, Right? If part of the building doesn't show up, then you get like water all down this wall back here and it stains our really nice paint job and like totally wrecks the wall. Doesn't matter that the church is essential in your spiritual life individually. Only if you're a bride who's connected into a body that needs you and you need it and that you're part of making the perfect building where God himself lives inside. Yeah, then it's important. So from there, uh, in our premarital counseling book that we use, there's a chapter on community, and he hits these, these practical points. That, and so that's, I'm going to pull from that book. I just want to reference it so you know I'm not stealing or cheating anything. And so I'm going to get the main points out of that and just give some insights because I thought it really brought up some helpful things for us to think about and hear, um, not just when we're about to get married and find a new church, but when we're plugged into a church and like, Realize, like, what value does God place on it and what value should we place on it? So, with that, the second point, what I'd say is prioritize a church that encourages you to love and serve. 
Prioritize a church that encourages you to love and serve. And so uh, summer's here for our family. It's awesome, right? We get to see each other all in the same room a lot more. Now, doesn't mean that doesn't create some frustrations and challenges, but summer's here, and our schedule throttles way down. It's a, it's a great feeling after spring, right? Everybody agree? Spring was crazy. Summer's a lot nicer pace, right? And so we get to sit around the table more than we usually do. Great. We get to, we're going to go to the beach at some point. Everybody together in the same house, two bedrooms. It's going to be great. <laughs> but we get to spend all this time together in a car, and like it's, it's, it's going to be amazing. But here's another thing summer holds for the Fowler family. Chore chart number seven. And guaranteed frustration is coming. Guaranteed failure is coming. But man... Like, we can't let them just be lazy the whole time, right? And, like, they need to be able to do this stuff and kind of keep a decent house when they go off on their own and grow up, right? They need some chores. As we gather with the church, oh, it's great to gather. It's great to have time together. It's great to sit in groups. It's great to sit around the table. It's great to eat together. Man, we love getting to be together. Chores sounds like a dirty word, but it's not. But if we enjoy sitting together so much that we never do the work that's necessary to keep the people running, the household running, we call it serving. Because we love we loved to get together. But somebody has to serve. It's part of you growing up. Somebody has to serve. The place falls apart when everybody doesn't do a part. Somebody has to serve. Everybody has to serve because if we don't, then just a few people do everything. And so the church needs to be a place that prioritizes you loving each other and hanging out. And it needs to prioritize you taking on the chores so that your spiritual muscles exercise and you're prepared for life and maturity in, in the body of Christ. Right? And so that's what I want us to look at. Prioritize a church that encourages you to love and serve. And I hope what you found is that as a church, we try to be very careful not to waste your time and not to just bombard your schedules with things to do. We try to respect that, right? And so if we're going to ask you, like, serve the church and make sure you're involved in the church informally and relationally, but also formally because things have to happen, we're going to do that in a way that we don't try to overwhelm anybody with the number of things we're doing so that it's unmanageable and the, that you're just carrying the weight of the church through your spiritual life and you have no time to do the things that we're asking you to do. We do try to do that. But I think it's also valuable on the other side for us to look back at you and challenge you and ourselves, right? We're part of the church. You gotta get up off your butt. You gotta get off the couch. You gotta quit eating potato chips for a little while. And you gotta go do your part for the household. And so do that. All right, and so in the church, there are some things that maybe you're not passionate about and maybe you don't wake up every morning thinking, yes, I wanna do that. I don't like to sweep the floor clean toilets either, but, you know, clean toilets and a swept floor are kind of important. So, you know, we have this thing called children's ministry, and you're like, man, I'm so glad that there's people who love children. You see how many children fly out of here on a given week? You had not seen the half of it that's over there. Right? If you hadn't been in that building a while, that's a big building, and it's full of kids. Man, I'm so glad those people take care of it. No. Step in and serve. I remember when, when we first had kids, uh, the church required you to work in the nursery. And I'm like, don't you realize I am a gifted teacher? 
don't you realize, like, I'm seminary trained? Now, I, I wasn't the pastor there, I was just a member. Don't you realize, like, who I am? You want me to work with the kids? They spit up on me. And then you work with the kids and you're humbled by God and you're wrecked by God. Don't you realize this is serving me? Don't you realize people I love are all over this building and they get to go hear about me because you give a Sunday here. And I was totally humbled. Who do I think I am that people, or uh, who do you think you are to ask me to serve? And God's like, who do you think you are that you can't love and serve the people around you so that they can experience peaceful time with me? As a church, we, we watch kids somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five hours a week. And then our people come and they turn around and say, would you give us one or two of those hours back? Like there's areas we have to serve. Maybe your passion is not children's ministry. But you love God. You love parents. You love the people that you call your church family enough to say, but I'll serve. And then... You should have areas like that. You should serve because it's part of your walk with Christ, and it will grow things in your life, but you should also serve in very meaningful ways that do align with your gifts and your skills and passion. And so you go over there to Sunday school, and you've got some teachers that are called to teach, and they identify with these kids, and they speak to these kids, and they do an amazing job with our kids week in and week out. They're expressing their gifts and passions. You see, every week there's people up here who are who are serving with their gifts and passions for music, whether it be instrumentally or in the sound booth or wherever. You see people exercising their gifts and passions. You see people that invite others into their home and fill their tables up with other people, exercising their gifts and their passions. You see people leading microgroups, exercising their gifts and passions. And so the point of this is, there's areas you serve because it's part of glorifying God and loving the people around you. And then there's areas you serve because it is the burning drive of your heart, the way God made you, and the way God gifted you, and you can't help but do it. And you should have both of those as part of your life and your church uh, faithfulness. And so Hebrews 10, that's where I'll go. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when it comes to the church loving and serving, walk through this passage. Now, like this is a whole sermon passage. I'm just going to hit some highlights. Consider because you belong to Jesus Because Jesus is the high priest who has saved you, hold fast to Jesus, and then part of holding fast to Jesus is consider one another. That means you should be OCD about other people. You should be obsessing about the people around you. What should you obsess about about the people around you? How can I provoke them to love Jesus more and to love the people around them more? Your mind should be occupied at points of your life Points of your worship time, points of your prayer time, points of your Sunday school time, looking around and saying, what would it take to provoke them to be more in love with Jesus? What would it take to get them to love people more, to to go deeper into relationships with other people? What would it take for them to go just express love in practical and tangible ways to more people? How can I get that to happen? You want a church that prioritizes a church that equips you to love or encourages you to love, 
to relational components, to relational ministry. And then you want to prioritize work to serve, right? What else should you be thinking about obsessively? How do you provoke people to good works? Right? I'm obsessively turning over in my mind. God, what would it take for them to serve? What would it take for them to get up and get back in the game? Because I know that their spiritual muscles atrophy when they're not exercising, when they're not doing anything, when they're not serving. And so, oh, what would it take to increase their love for Jesus? What would it take for them to get back and, and meaningfully express some good works to, the, to their workplace, some good works in the church, some good works that show Jesus off in every area of life? What would it take? Consider, obsess over. How do you provoke that in the people around you? How do other people provoke that in you? And by the way, I promise you, sitting at home or sitting on a golf course or wherever you can worship, you're not seeing the faces that you're meant to provoke to love and good works, nor are the people seeing your face thinking, how can I provoke them? And that's what he says next, right? Gather. So love, good works, and gather. Not neglecting the meeting of yourselves together is the manner of some. Meaning in the church, in Hebrews, as we've been talking about, things have gotten really hard and it became easier not to show up. Things became really hard and it was easy to neglect being part of the church anymore. And his command was like, Jesus has saved you. Hold fast to your confession. The way you hold fast to your confession is you consider one another how to stir one another, love and good works. And the way you hold fast to your confession is you show up. You don't neglect showing up. And so what they, through hardship and opposition and just being worn out, they neglected meeting together. For you and I, it's probably not hardship and opposition. It's probably entertainment and luxury and other things. But the effect is the same. We neglect meeting together. Now, it definitely means more than showing up to this room for an hour once a week. And it means more than showing up an hour early to Sunday school. It definitely means more than that but it doesn't mean less. It doesn't mean less than showing up for those couple of hours. Yes, it means more have relationships. Yes, it means more everyday life. They, they broke bread day by day in the temple and in each other's homes. It doesn't mean less, but it, I mean, it doesn't mean more, but it certainly doesn't mean less than showing up here for a couple hours a week where you're face-to-face -face with other believers. And they need your life, your ministry, your input, your sharpening, and you need theirs. Prioritize a church that encourages you to love. Get into relationships that cross the friend barrier and become genuine and accountable and loving and serving. And then one that prioritizes, like there's a doing component to Christianity that doesn't make you a Christian, but it expresses Christianity. Prioritize a church that'll do that in your life, that'll challenge you to these things in your life. And so a few observations I'll, I'll, I'll make because I've done this for a long time now. And, and so just a couple things I would say. The first one is this. There is generally a large area of immaturity in every single person that does not prioritize faithfulness to the local church. I have almost without fail witnessed this, that there is a massive area of immaturity in 99.9% .9 of all people that I've ever met that don't prioritize faithfulness to the local church. Now, they may know a lot, and so you don't quite see it. Or they may have like some appearances and know enough Christian stuff that you don't realize it, 
But always after I've observed them long enough, you'll see something in their spiritual life, something in their spiritual views, something in their treatment of others, something in their marriage, something that shows there is this immaturity area because they have not prioritized, or partly because they've not prioritized. Faithfulness, slow culture. Now, sometimes it's really obvious. There's always an immaturity area for people that don't prioritize the local church. And, and rem- remember when I say that, I don't mean prioritize just showing up, though you should prioritize showing up. I mean placing themselves deeply into community versus isolation. Deeply into connected to other people and serving other people, not on the outskirts of this thing called church. So always have found immaturity and usually gaping immaturity when you look long enough. A second thing that I've observed over more than a couple of years, proximity is required for relationship and influence. Proximity is required for relationship and influence. If you show up to Sunday school, you're not gonna have the most profound, deep, relational conversation you'll ever have. But if you show up to Sunday school week in and week out, you're gonna find the building blocks of relationships that start to continue beyond Sunday school. If you show up to church week in and week out, you're gonna see that some relationships form, like you have this greeting time, you start talking, and then you talk longer, and then sometimes you have lunch, and it starts to grow into this thing called relationship. You, you, you don't have relationships form when you don't show up. You, you have to be there in order for that to happen. And so I've had, you know, there's been people that have left the church over 16 years now, um, that I've done this. There's people that left the church, and a couple of them are like, I just couldn't find any friends. I, nobody pursued me. I just couldn't find any community. And not all of them. I, I take the blame. Like, sometimes we, we mess up. But so many times you look back and be like, but you, you, you just were never here consistently. You didn't give people a chance to love you. You didn't give people a chance to know you. You didn't give people a chance to pursue you. And then you judged them for not. Show up week in and week out over a long period of time, and if it doesn't happen, it's, it's on the people around us. But if you don't show up, you can't blame them. Proximity is essential for relationship. Proximity is essential for influence. Disappear from church, and invariably, the impact you would have for Christ, the influence you would have for Christ on other people, will, will dissipate and wither and dissipate and wither. My daughter has a fish. Man, it's, it's, it's like... Not a fish that swims or does anything, but just lay there and look dead. But we fill up almost every week. You fill the bowl up, completely full with water. And it's only like a week later, this much of the water's missing. A week later, this much, it's like there's this much left after a couple of weeks. When you're not consistently around people called the church, your influence is going to drain out and drain out and drain out along with the impact that you could have for Jesus Christ. That's just something I've observed. Another thing, and the last thing I'd observe, and I'll just, I'll just share the last one, I won't go into it a ton. Your muscles atrophy when they're not used, and your spiritual muscles atrophy when you don't serve. People that take in the word, and they take in Sunday school lessons, and they take in songs, and then they take them in another week, and then they take them in another week, but they never find ways to express that in service. They never exercise their spiritual muscles. Filter, filter, filter. Let's just say muscles atrophy. We won't say the other effects of laziness with eating too much. Um, 
When people don't exercise their spiritual muscles through service, their spiritual life's atrophy. And that's something I've seen time and time again. I was in church for 10 years. I was in church for 20 years. I kept showing up. But that's all I did was show up. And then you see these areas where their spiritual lives aren't all that they were meant to be. So I'll just read out the, the last point and, and, and kind of hit it briefly. Prioritize a church that equips you to mature in your faith. Prioritize a church that equips you to mature in your faith. The image I had for this, because I think it's the best imagery for spiritual growth, is like you have a leaky faucet. And you put a five-gallon bucket on it. And all it's doing is drip. 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 Stick a bucket under and watch. What happens? Nothing. Drip. Drip. It's like not even big enough to pool. Come back the next day, what happens? A five-gallon bucket is full. I believe that's a great imagery of what spiritual maturity looks like. I have never had lasting growth happen in my life because I went to a banging conference. Now, I had some moments of high moments and excitement, and I'm pumped up, and I would go back, and like a week later, life. And all that excitement would be gone. And so, how have I matured to the place I am? And i got a long way to go. How have you matured to the place you are? Most of the lasting spiritual impact in your life has been the right drips in your bucket that were unnoticeable, that weren't flashy, that didn't seem to do anything. But drop after drop after drop, you find that your spiritual life is full and mature over enough drops. And so, like, you aren't going to, you don't remember last week's sermon. No, you do, because Micah did an awesome job. You don't remember my sermon two weeks ago. Like, I don't know what he talked about. Maybe if you had your notes. You certainly don't have a clue what I talked about a month ago. It didn't do anything. No, it did. It put one drop. What did your Sunday school teacher teach on three weeks ago? No clue. Drop. What did you read in your quiet time? Last Thursday, I don't know, drop. And what you find is that God, layer after layer, drop after drop, through ordinary faithfulness, ordinary means of grace, ordinary showing up, ordinary singing, ordinary sermons, not passion kind of singing and not passion kind of sermons, man, they go. Showing up in churches like this and letting God put one drop after one drop after one drop in your life. And rarely is it flashy, and rarely do the heavens open, and God speaks in the form of a dove. But you find that consistent faithfulness creates in you this full, mature, spiritual life. And that's the way growth happens most of the time. And so prioritize a church that prioritizes your growth. But first, you better prioritize your own growth. And then join a church that prioritizes it as well. I hope if you've been around here at all, like you know, we want you to grow up. We want to challenge you to maturity. We want to put the support structures and have our discipleship process come around you to help you grow and mature. Like that that's not news to you. That's what we want. And that's, that, that's kind of how we wire the thing. I hope if you are immature, we love you and we love you being here. But I hope that if you're perpetually immature, you're increasingly uncomfortable hanging out here. Right? Does that make sense? We love immature people coming. We love babies hanging around. We just don't want you to stay that way. We don't want you to be comfortable that way. We want to help you grow. Prize a church that does that. Now, there's one point that's not in your, 
in your bulletin, I'll just say, I'll prioritize a church that provides others to care for you. Prioritize a church that provides others to care for you. Guaranteed in this life you're going to suffer. Guaranteed. Fallen world, no way to escape it. A church is filled with people that love you enough to walk in when that happens. Guaranteed you're going to sin and struggle with sin. And God's provided a church to where you who are spiritual restore one who's caught in any transgression. That we love each other enough to walk into that too. So a couple practical things as we, as we wrap up. Where on the priority scale of your life would you rank consistent faithfulness to your local church? Where on the priority scale of your life would you rank consistent faithfulness to your local church? Please hear me say, plugged in to a group of people where you attend and you serve and you share life outside of church and inside of church, you don't hear show up to the building, right? That's part of it, like you should show up, but it's farther than that. Make sure you hear that. Where on the priority scale of your life would you rank that? And why would you rank it that way? And that's an honest question you should ask and answer. It's an honest question you should probably ask within a microgroup. And a good way to know is be like, what gets your time? What gets your money without you worrying about having to pay money? What gets dropped when two things come into conflict? What's the easiest thing to skip in your life? And I would say if the easiest thing to skip on all the things that you do, right, your travel plans and your, your vacations and your sports and your hobbies and just being tired, if church is the easiest thing to get rid of, then you found the order of your priorities. Now, please don't, let me, don't hear me say that you can't have vacation and there's not times we miss and there's not times you should have a ball game. What I'm saying is when regularly the two things collide and every time they collide, church becomes the optional, then you found a priority level and it's worth exploring. You may or may not make an adjustment, but you should at least look at it, right? What's the priority scale? Second, what hinders your consistent faithfulness to church? What can hinders your consistent faithfulness to church? Right? What gets in the way? Be a great conversation to have with another brother or another sister in a microgroup. Like, what is it that gets in the way? Why does it get in the way? Why do you, how often do you let it get in the way? Now, I'm going to say this because the book that I referenced says it. <clears throat> and I think it's helpful. He says you should prioritize being in your local church 48 out of 52 weeks a year. He's a counselor, a professional counselor. He uses that standard. Maybe it's 45, maybe it's 50, whatever. But his point is, most weeks, almost every week, that, that you should prioritize being there, which sometimes means you come home a little early from a trip. Sometimes it means you shut the lights out on some friends like 30 minutes or an hour earlier so you're rested and ready to come. Whatever needs to happen, right? Maybe you turn off Netflix at like, 10, 30, 11, not one or two, and then all of a sudden you're not tired and, and, and you can wake up. Or you don't drag yourself into church and give half your heart to it because you're, you're so worn out that you can't do it. And then the last one, how invested are you in relationships, service, and maturity? How invested in, are you in relationships, service, and maturity? And what I mean is intentional relationships. Intentional service and ministry formal ways that you can serve because it takes something for us to show up and saying it takes something 
every week for our kids to be taken care of. It takes something every Wednesday night during the school year for kids to be taught and watched and hear about Jesus. It takes something for people to stand up here and sing every week. It takes something for video and audio things to happen. There's formal. But don't you ever hear us say, stop at formal informal. What are some informal ways you can serve? Informal ways of showing hospitality. Informal ways of doing relationships with other people. How invested are you in the formal and the informal relationships, service, and maturity that it takes? And so for better or for worse, Jesus gave us the church. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he looks at the jacked up church, if they believe the gospel down the street, isn't she beautiful? Look how sparkling white her wedding gown is. And he's amazed every time she walks out of the doors into the wedding ceremony venue. He looks at you that way. He looks at us that way. He looks at the church down the street that way. Do you look at her that way? Because it's really easy to see, and don't think Jesus misses it, right? Because we're a jacked up sinful lot of people. Like, we give him a lot of reasons to see a stained, messy, ripped up dress bride. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, that is not what he sees. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, he invites you to see what he sees about the church. Not what you've experienced, not how she's messed up, not how we fail even now. To see his church the way he sees her, spotless, without spot and blemish, in the pure white linen white of a, of a bride that he loves, that he saved, that's his. For better or for worse, go all in with the church. Prioritize, prioritize faithfulness to your local church. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, make us a people that see your church the way you do. Most of us have had enough bad experiences and we've had enough hurt or we've had enough disappointment. It'd be so easy to see it another way. Give us your eyes for your bride. Give us your heart for your bride. Give us your passion for your church that's about your glory. Would you give us that again, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.